Welcome to the Bridgeway Church Podcast. My name is David Bowden, and every week I sit down with one or several members of our church staff and host a conversation about how Bridgeway is seeking to fulfill its mission as the Church of Jesus Christ here in our city. If you are a member of Bridgeway, we hope this helps you more deeply engage with what God is doing in our midst. And if you aren't a part of Bridgeway, we hope you feel welcome and that our discussions may lead to more Christ-glorifying ministry in your own context. Let's jump in. Welcome to the Bridgeway Podcast. We've got uh, lead pastor uh, Sam Storms here with us in studio today talking about a really central issue, uh, what is a gospel-centered church? So we're really glad to have you here, Sam, today. Well, it's good to be here. I hope you're going to enlighten me and help me out I know. I've this been, one out. I've been working hard to bring something. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I am really excited to talk to you about this, though, because um, the word gospel-centered gets thrown around a yep. lot, uh, especially in our circles, um, for good reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't say that like with bitterness, like I'm really glad it's being thrown around. Mm. But um, as terms become more common and less defined, they become harder for us to wrap our minds around and actually apply. So um, as we are in this little series of ecclesiology, uh, last week we talked about why we need the local church. This time we're going to talk about what is a gospel-centered church. Um, we need to start with what is gospel-centeredness? What is gospel centrality? So um, where do you want to start with that kind of a question? Yeah, that's a great place to start. Um, a lot of people may be wondering why there is such an emphasis on it in the present day. Mm. And I've, I've traced this back a little bit historically. Now, granted, the evangelical church has always been gospel-centered in the sense that they have focused on the gospel, they have highlighted the realities of what God has done for us in Jesus. But it's really been the last 20 years, uh, toward the late 90s mm. and uh, into the present century, and it largely was due to the influence of what we call the emerging church or the emergent church. Oh, really? It was uh, because uh, at, as part of the, the core uh, element in those who advocate what we call the emerging church, there were doubts being cast upon the, the, the nature of the gospel as we have traditionally understood it. Hmm. And they oftentimes would expand it to include virtually everything. And in making the gospel all-inclusive, they lost the focus, I think, of the New Testament concerning uh, the issue of salvation. And so there was this reaction, um, I think most times good and healthy, sometimes reactionary. And I don't, reactionary is a little bit different, but there was a, a godly reaction to this, which said, well, we obviously haven't done our job. We need to define clearly what the gospel is. Mm. We need to be very clear about what are the non-negotiables in the gospel. And that kind of uh, just kind of has led to where we are today, where, as you said, gospel centrality is now, it's just a, it's almost just a a phrase. It's like a buzzword. Buzzword that everybody uses because they want to be accepted and noticed. But when when you stop and say, all right, what exactly do you mean by that? And what difference does it make? Mm. Um, So that's where we want to go today. We want to talk about... What exactly do the terms mean, and for that matter, not mean, and what difference does it make practically, not only in how we live individually, but what a church is going to be like? Okay, interesting. So in this reaction to the emergent church, then, it wasn't necessarily, you would say, gospel this gospel-centered movement, or was it more just like a redefinition of the word gospel itself? Well, I think it was an awakening okay. to the evangelical world that... 
uh, we need to be very clear in how we define it and and have we lost our focus upon it and um, part of the uh, you know there's so many elements and this might even make for another good podcast mm. we could do is the whole issue of the emergent church yeah and what and, and does it even exist anymore, anymore. <laughs> yeah because <laughs> uh, in certain circles it does but um, there was a reaction on their part to what they thought was a highly individualized, just me and Jesus, right. I'm going to go to heaven after I die mentality that didn't really address, okay, but how are you going to live now? Right. What's your responsibility toward your neighbor? What's your responsibility toward the, toward the crime in your streets or poverty or other global issues that are so much in the forefront of our thinking now? And so those in the emerging church said, we fear that being so gospel-focused, you have lost sight of the here and now. In other words, this you are so oriented to this vertical, mm. uh, how, how can I get right with God? How can I get my sins forgiven? That you have lost sight of how does this play itself out on a broad horizontal scale in terms of how I live out and how our church lives out mm-hmm. its calling uh, in the communities where we're embedded. So in a sense, the emerging church was right. There mm-hmm. was a there was a failure to address those questions. But the problem, as within every correction, it becomes overcorrection, and then it becomes miscorrection. Mm-hmm. And so, what we now what we saw emerging was that people began to neglect the vertical, right? And they began to define the gospel so broadly, like, well, what is the gospel? Well, it's taking care of the environment. Or what is the mm-hmm. gospel? Well, it's a racial reconciliation. Well, make no mistake, those are most assuredly implications and consequences of the gospel. Right. If you're gospel-centered, you will be passionately concerned about those issues, but that doesn't mean you define the gospel by those issues. I see. Yeah, that's really helpful. So uh, the reaction more was saying, okay, thank you for bringing us back down to this horizontal emphasis, but we need to make sure that we define the gospel as the Bible does and then bring it to bear on all those horizontal elements. And so being gospel-centered is being able to say, we want to help our neighbor and protect the environment and do all these horizontal things and all the vertical things, but we want to do so rooted and grounded in right. and, and energized by the gospel itself. So we need to define the gospel. Sure. Yeah, and I think a helpful place to begin, and this is just the language I use, is by talking about what is essential to the gospel mm. and what is entailed by the gospel. Okay. Or let's put it this way, what is the content of the gospel and what are its consequences? And I think sometimes we take the consequences and we use that to define its content, and I don't think that's mm. helpful. So yeah. I define the gospel very simply as um, God has graciously done in and through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, everything necessary to secure our forgiveness of sin and reconciliation to him forever. That's the core message of what we mean by the good news. Why is it good news? Because our greatest problem is our alienation from God. Mm. Jesus said in John 3.36, that whoever does not obey the Son, the wrath of God abides on him. So. What are the biggest problems we're facing? Well, we've got massive social, political, uh, racial problems mm-hmm. in our society, but the fundamental problem is we are alienated from our Creator, yeah. and we stand under His judgment apart from the saving work of Jesus. So that's the core content of the gospel, which has a multitude of ramifications mm-hmm. and consequences, uh, which we'll get into in just a moment. So I think that's where we have to begin. And one thing that is uh, 
that, that has helped me, and I think it was D.A. Carson that first used this type of language. He said, you can view the gospel through a narrow lens or a wide-angle lens. Mm. The narrow lens is the one I just gave you that focuses in on the good news of who Jesus is and what God has done for us through him. The wide-angle lens takes in a more global, um, a holistic approach to every issue that we face today, mm. um, whether it be, as we said, environmental, political, governmental, social, moral, sexual issues that we have to address. So the gospel certainly speaks into those areas, but we shouldn't let the gospel be defined by them. Gotcha. Okay, so that's kind of the content of the gospel then, the narrow focus on what Jesus has done, everything necessary to secure forgiveness of sins and reconcile us to God. Uh, And then we're seeing now that that lens can also open up into a wide angle and touch every aspect of life, absolutely every aspect of life, um, and corrects it, um, brings it to wholeness. I mean, I'm thinking of like, behold, I'm making all things new. Sure. You know, that declaration of Jesus. Yeah, in fact, let me just interrupt right here. Sure. Again, I don't know when this podcast will be heard, but my guess is it won't be too far from now, right. and and many people listening to this will be aware of this this debate that's going on that's just erupted over the social yep. gospel, so-called, or social justice. And there is a kind of a, a wing or a faction within the evangelical world that is very upset that Bible-believing evangelical Christians are actually addressing matters in the church, in the life of the church, from the pulpit, um, matters such as what do we do about the racial divide mm-hmm. and the racial um, um, lack of harmony that exists? What do we do about the poor? What do we do about the homeless? Um, and they're saying, well, yeah, okay, we need to address that, but let's let's be clear that that's not what the gospel is. Mm. And yet, the people on the other side who are really raising our consciousness on these issues are saying. Okay, we agree. We we're on the same grounds in terms of what the gospel is, but don't you agree that we have to address those issues? I mean, Jesus came, he preached good news to the poor, right. and it wasn't just the spiritually poor; it was the materially poor as well. He did come in order to restore relationships. Um, he did come. You know, we we are told in Romans eight, for example, that one of God's purposes is to ultimately uh, redeem the the natural creation right. and, and lift the curse. So what is our responsibility toward environmental care? Um, so this is a this is an issue that's still very much in the forefront of the of the church mm-hmm. and the evangelical church at the present time. Yeah. Okay. So then, what 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 are then? I mean, there seems to be the bl- that's the blurring that's taking place. Then is the content and the implications of the gospel. And so, um, do you want to drill a little bit more down on the content of the gospel? Yeah. Or do you want to start talking about the implications? Yeah. Let's. Okay. Let me just talk. Um, I, I I found it helpful to kind of reduce this to four simple statements okay. that I think people can remember. Number one, the gospel is not what God requires. The gospel is what God provides. Mm. So. There is an intrinsic demand implicit in the gospel. In other words, the good news that is proclaimed calls for a response of faith and repentance, but our faith and repentance are not themselves the gospel. Right. We need to, need to be clear about that. That's, the gospel is the good news of what God has done, and that demands a response from us of faith and repentance, but our subjective response to the gospel is not itself the gospel. Right. Okay. Secondly, The gospel is not an imperative demanding things that we are to do. It is an indicative declaring things that God has done. So again, 
Do we do things because of the gospel? <laughs> you bet. Yeah. And I'm going to talk about several in just a moment. But our doing things is not itself the gospel. Mm -hmm. Third, the gospel is not about human action. The gospel is about divine achievement. Mm. So again, I don't want to be misunderstood. I can hear maybe some people kind of pulling their hair out listening to this. I'm not suggesting that there aren't multiple implications, entailments, consequences, results um, of the truth of what God has done in Christ. We've talked about them. Um, uh, racial reconciliation, yep. social justice, and all of its manifestations. Um, but we, as I said, we must never confuse the content of the gospel with its consequences. We must not confuse its essence with its entailments. And then the fourth thing, the gospel is not a moralistic do. It is, in fact, a merciful done. Mm. So when I talk about the gospel, I'm not talking about anything that I do, anything that you are required to accomplish, I'm talking about what God has once and for all finally achieved through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that we proclaim yeah. that obviously calls for a response, has multitude of implications, uh, affects human relationships in, in almost every conceivable way. But to keep in mind that distinction between content and consequence, mm. I think if we can do that, we'll avoid a lot of the problems. I, again, I think so many of the problems... And the reason why people are speaking past each other is one person is talking about the content, the other is talking about the consequence, and they both think they're talking about the gospel. Right. And they need to stop and say, all right, let, let's flesh this out. Tell me exactly what you mean by those terms. Okay, that's really helpful. So, when we when we talk about gospel centeredness, then mm -hmm. are we talking? We're talking about when the realities of life meet a person, uh, maybe changed by the, con the the content of the gospel. We get the consequences of the gospel. Is that is that what's happening? Is we're bringing to bear the content of the gospel to the realities of life, and then we have these consequences that come out of it. Um, I'm trying to see how do we sure like. Yeah, how do these horizontal and vertical things come to bear yeah. on, on the well, content? Well, the first here? thing I would say is, and this is very important, is that um, the gospel is not just for non-Christians. In other words, we think, well, the gospel, that's what I uh, talk about when I'm sitting down at coffee with right. my unsaved friend. Or the gospel is what Billy Graham would typically preach uh, in his you know, his crusade. Right. Well, well, that's true. But um, the gospel is also for Christians. That's yes. what I mean by gospel centrality. What I'm talking about is the fact it's not just about how you get into the kingdom. Mm -hmm. It governs how you live yes. as a citizen of that kingdom. And I'll just give you one text that I, I found very helpful in this regard. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this, beginning with verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. Now, notice that. Here's a gospel not only that you received in the past, mm -hmm. but in which you are standing in the present, a gospel by which you were saved. So his point is the gospel is something that has present ramifications. It affects all relationships. Um 
And we can get into that in just a moment. But we need to remember that the gospel just isn't, you know, it's a lot like, well, you know, I can say, uh, here I am. Uh, well, I'm trying to think back. I got born again probably when I was about nine or 10 years old. Mm. So do I say, well, that was the, you know, decades ago, the gospel was relevant to my life, but now it isn't. <laughs> right. Uh, because it's just a matter of, uh, you know, making a decision for Jesus and being born again by the Spirit. Well, it certainly is that, but it is certainly far more. Mm-hmm. It, it is as applicable and relevant to believers as it is to non-believers. Now, then the question is, what do we mean by gospel-centered church? Oh, yeah, right. And I think one of the things where we have to begin is we have to realize that everything in the life of a local church has to in some way be grounded and rooted in the principal truths of what God has done for us in Jesus. Um, So everything from church government to the ministries we pursue, to the uh, to the mission that we feel like God has given us in a particular city, has to, in some sense, be related to and an outworking of the the realities of the gospel itself. So, let me just give you some examples of this. Great, um, and this gets us into some of the more personal consequences. Um, let's take for the example the issue of suffering. Hmm. Um, which nobody likes to talk about, much less experience, <laughs> yeah. but we have been called. And I think, for example, of 1 Peter chapter 2, where Peter talks about how Jesus, uh, when he was reviled, did not revile back, but kept entrusting himself to uh, the Father who judges rightly. And then it says, and he, in his suffering, in the way that he died for you, gave you an example of how you are to live. Mm-hmm. And so when I come up against um, uh, unjust criticism, or I'm ostracized, or somebody in the church, a businessman, loses a client because he or she is standing firmly on the truths of the gospel, and uh, they have they endure hardship because of that. How do they get themselves through that? How do they how do they find the the energy and the and the incentive to persevere without becoming embittered and without turning away from God and walking in the other direction? And the answer is. Look at what Jesus did for you. Mm-hmm. Look at how he responded to injustice. Look at how he uh, endured the most unimaginable pain, both physically and spiritually. So it's the gospel that gives us uh, the strength to, to persevere into suffering. Um, or take humility. Mm. Uh, you know, Paul writes in Philippians 2, 1 through 5, he talks about us clothing ourselves with humility and preferring one another above, uh, one another above ourselves. And then he, he grounds it in this. Have this mind, what mind? Well, the mind of humility, of self-sacrifice for others. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took upon himself the form of a servant and humbled himself even to death on a cross. So we say, oh, okay. So if I'm being tempted by pride and if I'm being tempted to advance my own cause at the expense of others— how do I overcome that sinful energy in my soul? And the answer is, look at what Jesus was willing to do in order to deliver you from eternal damnation. Mm-hmm. Consider the immeasurable glory of being God and basking in the radiance of that glory with the Father and the Spirit, and yet he made himself of no reputation, clothed himself in the form of a servant, and suffered even to death on a cross. So again, the gospel, the realities of who Christ is and what he's done 
is what has to be the incentive for me trying to cultivate some measure of humility. Uh, another classic example, and everybody knows this one, it's Ephesians 5. How am I supposed to love my wife? Right. Well, you know, people got a lot of answers for that. <laughs> but Paul says here it's very simple. Love her the way Christ loved you. Mm-hmm. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So when I'm tempted to kind of bully my wife or get my own way or ignore her needs, I, I'm supposed to pause and think, wait just a minute. How did God in Christ love me? Well, he gave himself for me that he might purify me and make me a, a vessel of, of his glory. And that's the, that's the standard by which husbands uh, are to relate to their wives. It's, mm-hmm. it's rooted in the reality of the gospel. Yeah. Um, let me take one more, and we can come back to some others later, but you, know, you might have some questions. I'm thinking of how about the use of our money? Mm-hmm. And people are saying, wait a minute. <laughs> You're talking about deeply spiritual theological truths like the death and resurrection of Jesus. You th- that has something to do with how we use our money? Oh, yeah. Second uh, Corinthians 8, here is Paul talking about um, how we are to be generous and how we are to give to the needs of others, even when um, we are perhaps in almost a virtual state of poverty itself. And what's the foundation for this? In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So right there in the middle of this exhortation to the Corinthians to be generous and to fulfill their commitment to help the the, the starving saints in Jerusalem, he says, let me remind you of something. Think about how rich Jesus was and how poor he became so that you might become spiritually rich in him. That's the foundation. That's the motivation for being generous and sacrificial with our money. Right. So again, those are just a handful of examples of, so when somebody says gospel-centered, what does that mean? Well, it means that those kinds of responsibilities, those kinds of ethical uh, actions, uh, how I interact with whether my wife or other people, how I view my financial resources, all of that is rooted in some manner, whether directly or indirectly, to the reality of what God has done for me in Jesus. spend our money, everything like that's really helpful. Uh, one thing that I, I think people might be thinking as we talk about this is really understanding how gospel centrality in life operates upon us, because we don't call it gospel reflectiveness or uh, the or following the gospel example, because I think um, we could misconstrue what you're saying a little bit if we said that, well, look at what Jesus did and go and do likewise. But we're not necessarily saying like Jesus was the moral exemplar Look at his, look at him, and try to copy it. It, it. The gospel, its content, affects us in a way that creates consequences. Right? Sure. Would you talk a little bit, maybe, about the difference between, um, well, you know, Jesus did it really, really well. You should try too. Versus, 
the, when you when you actually revel in the fact that of what Jesus has done for you and it's in the gospel's content, it creates fruit consequences in your life. Sure. In fact, that um, the very point you just raised, I think, highlights the difference between a gospel-centered life and a religious-centered yes, life. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, the, the, it's, it's sad that the word religion has become a cuss word. Yeah. I mean, it's just terrible. I, you know, I read, I love Jonathan Edwards, as Religious you know. Religious affections, yeah. And, and he used religion all the time in a good sense. What he meant by it was spiritual devotion to Christ. Yeah. But um, religion today it's this, is based on this if-then relationship. Mm-hmm. If I do this, then God will love me. If I do what is right, then God will bless me financially. If I avoid sinful habits, then I'll be spared suffering and humiliation. Mm-hmm. It's a conditional relationship based on the idea of merit. Right. Um, so it's not like, okay, look at what Jesus did, now go and do likewise. It's rather a because, therefore mm. relationship. It's because we've been justified by faith in Christ that we have peace with God. Because Christ died for us, we are forgiven. Because he's fulfilled the law in our place, we're set free from its demands and penalty. So, yeah, the difference between um, you know just, just looking at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and thinking I need to imitate that, that's usually driven by a, by a works merit uh, mentality that says, well, if I can just jump through enough religious hoops and avoid enough sin— I will uh, warrant and earn God's extraordinary favor and blessings instead of saying, I already have every blessing. Yeah. I already, I, I've been blessed with every blessing in heavenly places, Ephesians 1. Yeah. I've been seated with Christ. I've been adopted into the family of God. Um, I've been given righteousness instead of bearing uh, the eternal consequence of my sin. Um, and because of what I've been given, what I already have, I find the motivation and the strength out of the overflow of that right? to give to others, not with the expectation that they'll give back, because then that's a religious-based orientation. Mm-hmm. But I give to others just because um, I know that in giving, uh, as Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to experience uh, a greater sense of the nearness and the favor and the joy of God's presence um, when I act out of the overflow of all that God has done for me in Jesus than, than for any other reason. Yeah. So um, th- this whole idea of, you know, of religion that, well, if I, if I talk in the right language and I dress the way people expect me to and I'm you know, faithful in tithing my money and attending church and avoiding scandalous sin and I'm faithful to my spouse, that that somehow will bring an enhanced life. Well, in one sense, yes, <laughs> because otherwise you'll experience divorce or go to prison or, right. or, or catch a disease, you know. Uh, but that's not our motivation. Our motivation is um, uh, the, the magnitude of the mercy that has been shown us in Jesus and the joyful, heartfelt gratitude that that produces Yes. Um, that that has to be the foundation for how we relate to others and how we how we live out the consequences of the gospel. Yeah, great. I, I really wanted you to make sure we double back on that because I think that is another place where um, understanding what it means to be gospel centered um, kind of gets blurred. So 
we've talked about what the gospel is. We've talked about um, content versus consequences. We've talked about how the gospel changes us uh, into uh, real life implications of being humble people, people who, people who are generous with our money. Now, the the question is: now that we've kind of laid all this found work, what is a gospel centered? church like uh, I, is it just a church comprised of gospel centered people or is there is there something different going on here or you know, not necessarily different but additional yeah yeah it's a great question well for example i look at our uh, children's ministry here at bridgeway mm-hmm. and um, those who give leadership to it and direction to it are very much informed by the reality of what we've just been talking about about yes. the nature of the gospel and they realize that their primary calling isn't just to entertain our kids or keep them from, you know, uh, tearing each other apart while the adults are doing the real business in the auditorium. <laughs> right. But rather that we are there to uh, proclaim to them the only hope that they have for life now and hereafter. Um, we would hope that as we ask questions, let, let's just take one example. Let's ask the question. What do we do with our money as a church? Mm. Uh, now, here at Bridgeway, we have a commitment to give at least 10% of all the money that comes in to missions and evangelism and church planning. Um, if we were not gospel-centered, it's entirely possible that we would be like some churches and uh, give uh, 10% to international aid or 10% to alleviate homelessness in the city. Now, do we give money to ministries and organizations that do that? Mm-hmm. Yes, we do. But we also are very careful to make sure that the that the ministries and the people, the individuals, as well as the 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 uh, uh, missionaries and the agencies that carry out those functions, are communicating the gospel to the people they're seeking to serve. Yeah. So, in other words, we want we want to be a church that supports a ministry that cares deeply about the fact that there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of children who are starving to death today around the world. And as we supply them with food to enable them to live physically, we want to communicate the glorious good news of how they can live eternally, spiritually. Okay, yeah. So so in that specific example, we're, we're saying that whereas, or just as, I should say, the content of the gospel comes to an individual and creates the consequences of... Um, a gospel-centered life, such as following the humility of Christ or being generous with um, our time, resources, treasure, just as Christ was generous with his life, that happens in the individual. What happens in the church as a collection of gospel-centered individuals is the policies that we make, the things that we practice, what we prioritize, Mm -hmm. um, all of that is affected by the content of the gospel and creates different kinds of consequences, right? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think of, um, you know, unfortunately, we know that uh, in churches, and no church is immune from this, people can get at odds with one another, and they can sit on opposite sides of the auditorium and avoid each other in the cafe as they're leaving or coming in, and they're ho- they hold grudges, and they become embittered toward one another, and it, mm. it, it just poisons life in a local church. Well, how do you overcome that? Mm. Um, well, I'm not going to stand up there in front of them and say, don't do that. <laughs> right. <laughs> Stop it. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that's not going to help. Nope. Um, what I do is I take them, for example, to Ephesians 4 and Colossians mm-hmm. 3, where Paul says, forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. 
Or I take them to John 13, where uh, Jesus uh, gave an example uh, of how he, out of his love for his disciples, served them in a way that was quite um, lacking dignity. It was a demeaning, I mean, getting down on his hands and knees and washing dirty feet. Mm. Um, or how about, how about uh, the exercise of our freedom, Romans 14? Um, here Paul is saying, look, those of you who are stronger in your faith and you understand that you can eat and drink whatever you please as long as you don't do it to excess, um, well, sometimes you need to forego that liberty for the sake of somebody who doesn't have quite the robust conscience that you do mm-hmm. or, or the freedom of conscience that you do. And he grounds all that in the fact that, hey, Christ died for that person too. Right. So here he is again. Why should I care about the effect of my uh, lifestyle choices on some other believer? And the answer is because Jesus didn't just die for you, Sam. He died for Fred and Sally and Mark and mm-hmm. Ann and the others who might be adversely affected because they just haven't quite grasped the implications of Christian freedom. So something as basic as that is rooted in the gospel. Right. So so we've kind of talked, it just seems like we're kind of outlining almost our mission statement here in a bit because we talked about how we spend our resources, gospel-centered missions, mm-hmm. you know, and then that sounds to me like gospel-centered discipleship. How are you training up people in godliness? It's through the gospel and community too. Yeah, and, and yeah, and then we also say that we have we we pursue gospel-centered community and uh, gospel-centered worship mm-hmm. or other things. So it seems to be like this pattern of like, okay, how do we pursue discipleship? But well, we're going to do so through the content of the gospel, creating the content of a, of a disciple on the other side. That it, it's always going to we're always going to pass through the gospel to get to the ends that we seek, yeah. right? Is that, what gospel, is that why it's gospel-centered? Because it's in the, the gospel's in the middle, we pass through it to get to everything, worship, I, I, mission, I think I, I certainly think that's part of it. Okay. I also think um, it's because the biggest challenge we face isn't knowing what to do. Mm-hmm. It's having the incentive in that's our right. heart, the motivation, the energy to, um, to, to not um, take an insult and then hold it against a person uh, indefinitely. It's the ability to lower ourselves so that another might be elevated mm-hmm. and honored. Well, I, I, you can tell me, thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt not, <laughs> thou shalt not. Yeah. But in the bo- when, it, when the rubber meets the road, um, I'm asking the question, how do I get the consent of my heart to do that? Yes. How do I, because I'm a, by nature, a self-centered, self-promoting, ambitious fallen person. So where does that kind of a soul find the strength and the incentive um, to uh, to press through those kinds of challenges? And to be gospel-centered means the first place I turn is the gospel. Yeah, Sam, stop and reflect for a moment on the magnitude of what God has delivered you from solely because he's a God of love and mercy and grace. You know, if you, if you got what you deserved, um, you know, game's up. But you don't. You get what you don't deserve. You get mercy. You get the righteousness of Christ. You get forgiveness and adoption and redemption mm-hmm. and, and uh, reconciliation and the hope of, a, of eternity in the presence of Jesus. And it's that reality that, that has to, through the power of the Spirit, and again, it's not just thinking about it. Let's be clear. Right. It's not just having a cognitive grasp on that truth. It's crying out to the Spirit of God. Spirit of God, take that reality 
and change the way I feel toward my brother or my mm-hmm. sister. Help me see in them what you see in them. Let me understand the, the reality of what it means that, that that is a person for whom Christ shed his blood. Mm. Um, you know, I just, just to take one more example, I, I think of Acts 20, 28 often when people ask, well, why should we even care about being a church at all? What The church is so hypocritical and so screwed up and, and so ineffective and so self-absorbed. Why, why should we even care? And I say, because God cared enough to shed the blood of his own son to redeem it. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the foundation for Paul's egg. By the way, there's another example. He's exhorting elders to pastor the flock of God. And on what basis? God gave up his son to redeem her. He shed the blood of his own son in order to, to deliver th- this, this thing called the body of Christ from sin and damnation. So again, even, even the motivation for how elders lead and shepherd the body of Christ is rooted in the gospel. talking about um, all these different sins and pitfalls, you know, you're talking about how we are by nature self-centered and, and all these things, and you're saying that the gospel is sufficient to come to you in any place, address any sin, and change your heart to actually want holiness instead of sin. And um, I think that a lot of people struggle to believe that. I know I often struggle to believe. Is the gospel really sufficient to pry my affections off of that sin? You know, and then uh, then I look. If it isn't, nothing is. Right, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely right. (laughs) Look at the alternatives. (laughs) Oh my goodness, yeah. And then I think of, since we're talking about the church, I I wonder if that insufficiency, that fear of insufficiency, is even more prevalent. Is the gospel really enough to uh, reach my neighborhood? Is the gospel really enough? To, um, to reconcile the races in our culture? Is the gospel really enough to uh, empower and achieve the goals of this or that ministry? Um, and, and I think that we have to say, of course it is, but I, I wonder if we often um, divert to other approaches. Uh, you know, we could just try this strategy or we could try this sure. program and we could try to kind of, if we draw a good enough org chart or, you know, a good enough battle plan, then we can accomplish it. And we don't really go, how does the gospel come and accomplish this or that mission yeah. in our church? And I think that that response, that reaction, that kind of instinctive tendency we have to look to some other method or mm-hmm. mechanism is born of our own fallen nature, which says, if anything's going to be done and done well, I have to do it. That's right. I have to achieve it. And we, we, it is, this is what makes the gospel so scandalous. <laughs> this is why Paul talks about being an offense is because it, it runs directly counter to every instinctive um, impulse in my body, my soul, and my spirit, which is do it for yourself, do it out of selfish motivation, do it to increase your comfort. Uh, do it to win brownie points with man and God. <laughs> and the gospel comes and says, no, stop. God has already accomplished and achieved everything you need and has provided everything for you in Christ that you'll, your heart could ever uh, even imagine. Now, out of the overflow of that kind of reality, 
love others. Stop keeping score with your spouse, for example. Yeah. Like to, so you can throw it back in his or her face five days later when the tables are turned. Um, uh, when you're tempted to to uh, somehow lift a little money from your employer, knowing full well that there's no way in the world you're going to get caught. Mm. Why should I? Why should I? Why shouldn't I do that? I could improve my family's life. I could even use some of that money and give it to the church. You know, try to even self-justify it somehow. Well, because um, God has provided you with riches in Christ. All the treasures of heaven and earth are in Him. Colossians two says. Um, why would I think that just adding a few extra dollars? Uh, to my surplus that I already have is going to somehow enhance my life in a way that God can't. Yeah. So it's, again, really thinking through, understanding what the gospel is, and asking the Spirit of God, make this alive in my heart. Mm-hmm. You know, make this, make this a reality in me. Uh, just c- bring conviction when I'm stepping outside of the reality of that gospel centrality. Um, so, because, as I said just a moment ago, think about what the alternatives are. Yeah. And, and they, there might be a short-term gain that you think is worth it. Long-term, it isn't. Yeah. So um, I guess to conclude, I don't know if you've ever developed a definition of a gospel-centered church, uh, but maybe we could try to take a stab at one or something. But like, oh is it a is it a, a gospel-centered church? Is a is a church that is, uh, I don't know, overflowing with the content of the gospel, so it bears well, the consequences of the gospel? Or maybe, maybe it would help. I'm just, this image is coming to mind. Maybe we could look at it in terms of a, of a wheel, okay, and at the center, the, the from which the spokes, as it were, project, right, uh, is the gospel, mm-hmm. and in some manner or form, which we would have to flesh out, obviously, in case some by case, detail, yeah, in some manner, the reality of what we've described as the gospel fuels and gives shape to and forms. Every expression of ministry, every expression of body life, in every expression of how we make use of spiritual gifts, mm-hmm. uh, how we make use of our money. And so everything that constitutes the outer circle of that wheel is somehow rooted in and governed by that center, uh, which is the, the, the nature of the gospel itself. That's helpful. That's a good note to end on. Well, Sam, thank you. This has been really encouraging for me. I mean, anytime we just get to sit here and just kind of go through the different ways the gospel changes us, it's going to be a good day. So thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Sam, for joining us. And uh, we will look forward to having you on next time. Thank you for listening to the Bridgeway Podcast, where you will find a new conversation every Thursday. For more information about Bridgeway Church, we invite you to visit bridgewaychurch.com, or you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at BridgewayOKC, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash bridgewaychurchOKC. If you have any questions that you would like us to address on the podcast, feel free to email us at podcast at bridgewaychurch.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, please consider leaving us a review on the podcast app as it helps other people like you find our program. So on behalf of all the pastors and staff here at Bridgeway Church, I'm David Bowden saying thanks for listening and we will see you next week.